Hello, and welcome on into a surprising episode of Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Check your ankles because I'm going a different direction. I discovered a podcast called The History of College Football that has a bunch of great episodes on individual college teams. I don't know if he has an episode on Princeton, but he's got a lot and they're good. So if you want something like that, head on over there. Instead of team highlights, I'm going to cover the history of conferences in this space. It fits my big picture motif a little better anyway. We'll keep it easy and call it conference highlights. I'm happy to be here and of course, very happy to have you here as well. But before we dive into any conferences in particular, we need a very brief aside to establish a baseline for what a conference is. Every show is someone's first, so I don't want to assume anything about what you do or don't know. When I say conference in reference to football, a lot of people are going to immediately jump to the NFC and AFC conferences in the NFL, but that is not what we're talking about here. Those groupings are completely underneath the NFL and exist entirely at its whim. They have no independence and their association with the pre-merger NFL and AFL is in-name only. A college athletics conference is a formal association of the athletic departments of any number of American universities. An athletic department manages all athletic programs at a university that offer scholarships, which are deals wherein all or part of a student's cost of attendance is waived in exchange for them playing a sport at the school. Not all universities have an athletic department, but most do. And not all that do are in a conference, but most are. Those that aren't are referred to as independents, and that used to be a lot more common than it is today. We'll cover most of this in excruciating detail as we proceed through the history. But the primary reason conference affiliation has become not just the norm, but the overwhelming norm over the last several decades is squarely the fault of football more than any other sport. This is because, more than any other sport, football is a television show, and television, even in the age of cord cutting and streaming, is big money. Schools learned a long time ago they could pool their value with other schools to create larger broadcast rights deals, and so conferences, which to that point had been much looser affiliations existing mostly to cement schedules and foster greater academic partnerships, became the primary vehicle for leveraging a group of schools' athletics value. In some sense, the Intercollegiate Football Association could be understood as the first college athletics conference, but since they made the first rules around amateurism and eligibility, I prefer to think of the IFA as a forerunner of the National Collegiate Athletics Association, or NCAA, which is the overall organization that oversees scholarship athletics for most American universities. Instead of worrying about what exactly constitutes a conference, though, I'm just going to start with the oldest one that's still around, and that's easy. Not only is it still around, it's one of the biggest and most powerful conferences, the Big Ten. In its earliest days, it wasn't called the Big Ten. It was called the Intercollegiate Conference of Faculty Representatives, but colloquially it was referred to as the Western Conference and included Michigan, Illinois, Minnesota, Northwestern, Purdue, and Wisconsin. We'll cover the spread of football to this part of the country very soon, but for now let's just enjoy that all these schools are not only still playing big-time college football, but are also still together in the same conference. That cannot be said for my next conference, the Southern Intercollegiate Athletics Association, or SIAA, which was massive when it first began, with at least one member from every state between Virginia and Texas. Among the founders were Vanderbilt, Auburn, North Carolina, Alabama, Virginia, and Georgia, and they would soon expand to include such names as Clemson, LSU, and Texas, among others. This version of the SIAA functionally ceased to exist in 1920 when many of its members broke off to form the Southern Conference. 
But the Southern Conference didn't last long either. There's a joke here somewhere. Something, something South, something, something Secession. I'm sure one of you can come up with it. Anyway, most of the schools in the Deep South broke away from the Southern Conference in 1932 to form the Southeastern Conference, or SEC. Around 20 years later, most of the rest of the original members broke away to form the Atlantic Coast Conference, or ACC. The Southern Conference still exists, we usually call it SOCON, only now it no longer operates in major college football and it has none of its original members, but it was the soil in which these other two conferences grew. The forerunner of the modern Pac-12 got going in 1915 as the Pacific Coast Conference and has remained a more or less intact association of universities in the Pacific time zone with a couple recent additions further east. There's some debate about whether the Pac-12 counts as a direct successor of the PCC, to be, but to be honest, that's a little too fine-grained and nitpicky for my taste. There were other conferences worth knowing about, but I just wanted to establish a baseline. So for now, know this. College football is a game of competing conferences, as much, if not more than, a game of competing football programs. Conferences are functionally the highest authority in the sport, and there are, at time of recording, 10 of them at the top level of college football. Those 10 are further broken into two sets of five, with the wealthiest five conferences being called the Power Five, and the rest being called the Group of Five. But wait, you say, what about the NCAA? Isn't that the highest authority in college athletics in general, football included? Technically, yes. But in today's game, that technically true fact is being asked to bear a whole lot of weight. Beginning in 1984 and continuing through to the present, the U.S. Supreme Court has found less and less good cause for the NCAA to continue to operate as it historically has. Before 84, the NCAA reserved the right to negotiate television appearances for all its member institutions in all sports, so much so that many football programs used to brag about how many times they'd been on TV. But a lawsuit by the universities of Oklahoma and Georgia changed all that. There was just too much money and too much value in college football to continue treating it that way, and so the rights were kicked back to the schools. From that point forward, the number of schools without conference affiliation began to rapidly dwindle. The ranks of the independents used to contain names like Florida State, Miami, and Penn State alongside Notre Dame. But today, for anyone not named Notre Dame, independence is the last stop on the way to oblivion. It's where you go when the hypothetical value you bring to a conference is less than the value you take as part of your cut of the broadcast deal. It's program purgatory. I'll make a slight caveat for BYU, Brigham Young University, in that they were attempting to build a relationship to independence more like Notre Dame's and were mostly successful. They were mostly successful because like Notre Dame, they have a built-in relationship with a healthy religious minority in the United States. In BYU's case, that's the Latter-day Saints, in Notre Dame's case, American Catholics. But then the Big 12 Conference showed up with an invitation and BYU dropped the entire independence enterprise. Penn State joined the Big 10 in the early 90s. Florida State joined the ACC around the same time. Miami joined the Big East then, but they later left for the ACC. Historically, conference affiliation was, in addition to being less formal, also pretty strictly geographic. The Southeastern Conference can be located about where you'd expect. The PAC and PAC-12 stands for Pacific, so I bet you can find that one too. The defunct Southwest Conference might be a little tougher, but just point at Texas and you have found every single member that there ever was except for one. 
Even all the ones with the word big in the name, Big Ten, Big 12, Big East, Big Eight, and so on, they all had regional identities that are, or in a couple of cases, unfortunately were, well known. But all the movement that resulted from the scramble for television dollars resulted today in what we would call conference realignment. And even after almost four whole decades, it's reshaping the sport almost every year. As we speak, a hush-hush deal during the pandemic has Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 for the Southeastern Conference. They'll be following former Big 12 members, Texas A&M and Missouri, who jumped to the SEC almost a decade ago. Those two followed Arkansas, who left the Southwest Conference, which was a forerunner of the Big 12, for the SEC in the early 90s. The exit of Texas and Oklahoma led to the aforementioned offer for BYU to join the Big 12 alongside the University of Central Florida, Cincinnati, and Houston. If you know anything about the geography of the United States, you can see how this new Big 12 doesn't really seem to have the regional identity that was once crucial for an athletics conference. But the truth is, neither does the SEC anymore. We can fight about what is or isn't the South till the river runs dry, but if you're going to argue that it includes Missouri, I can fight just as well in the mud. But the SEC's annexation of two of the biggest brands in all of American sports wasn't just a problem for the Big 12. It was a move that required a response from the Big 10, which is the only conference that could be considered the SEC's equal. The next year, in another surprising move some took so hard as to call a betrayal, the Big Ten added Southern Cal and UCLA, the two major football programs of Los Angeles from the Pac-12. Which means in short order, two teams from LA will be playing regular conference games in Madison, Wisconsin and College Park, Maryland. The effect of all this has been a constant churn that is, in my opinion, the biggest problem facing the sport. There's never been an even playing field in college football. That's a truth so intrinsic to the sport as to be fundamental to it. It means you have one sport where a nine-win season is a generational triumph for Vanderbilt, but a complete disaster for Alabama. What makes this sport great is the regional relationships and preserved peculiarities of mostly little, out-of-the-way places in an otherwise enormous cosmopolitan country. West Coast football has a different flavor than Southern football which is in turn a little different from football in Texas, which is very different from football in Iowa. The effect is a beautiful tapestry woven of wildly different fabrics into a continuous whole that stretches from coast to coast. It's the thing that the college game has that no one else can truly match. This is part of why the departure of USC and UCLA from the Pac-12 hurt so bad. It made perfect business sense for all parties involved, but it's the kinds of kind of disruption that feels like an attack, not only on the individual institution of the Pac-12, but on the very tradition of West Coast football, and consequently, college football as a whole. So as the conferences shuffle, it's clear that the sky is growing smaller in college football. I said in my first episode, I wouldn't take an angle and I won't. But in light of the complete abdication of leadership by the NCAA, it seems to me like we badly need some institutional concern aimed at the overall health of the sport, rather than merely the wealth or one or another of its subsets. That's my sermon. It's all I got. Next time, we'll get back to our chronological narrative, to what was at the time called the West, but today is called the Midwest. Our first real conference highlight will follow that, and we will be talking about the Big Ten. In the meantime, 
feel free to reach out to me at Dogs and Autumn on Twitter or email me at dogsandautumn at gmail.com. Also, uh, take a minute to leave a rating or review if you will. I'd sure appreciate it. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Thank you.